Now, there have even been a few people I've spoken with who who would know that said that the Harry Potter books, specifically books two through seven, were majority ghost written. I'm not asserting that. I've heard multiple people tell me that before. Who 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 would know? Let's say why? Because of the commercial potential for it. Do you think a multi-billion-dollar franchise is going to be left up to the work ethic? of one person who, by the way, gave birth to two children when the books were being written and released, the media tours, the 2003-2005. You look into it, you just re- you, you realize, oh, wait a second, this has all the tells. It's all the tells. Oh, she didn't write it. Oh, go, you know, go screw yourself. Who cares? Who cares, really? This is an empire. This is an empire. And there's never one person who's responsible for building an em- a multi-billion dollar empire. Hello and welcome to Culturescape. Today we're talking about the mysterious world of ghostwriting, the profession where unnamed authors or collaborators write content, see an article or a book or a piece of musical composition in the name of another author. To understand this topic, we are speaking with the author Joshua Lysak, a hypnotherapy certified ghostwriter with over 78 books under his belt. Josh is a well-known author, having written many genres and earned praise from professionals and critics across the cultural and political spectrum. He's also got a great Twitter at Joshua Lysak, where he dispenses useful tidbits about the ins and outs of the writing game. Hello, Joshua, and welcome to the show. Yes. Hello, Peter. Glad to be with you today. How does one start the trail to becoming a not just a ghostwriter, which is an interesting profession in and of itself, but also a hypnotherapist? Yes. Yes. So I've never met someone who became a ghostwriter intentionally. It typically happens by accident, such as with my story. Since I was a kid, think pre-teen, early teenage years, when the big budget uh, Lord of the Rings and then shortly thereafter Chronicles of Narnia films kind of began, that's when I first kind of became familiar with fandoms, where there's collections of, mm-hmm. of course, people who 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 read the books and the movies and buy the products and what whatnot, and uh, I I find myself in those for both Lewis and uh, and Tolkien. And at the time, I was thought thinking about my future as a teenager tends to do and what one's going to do. And I said, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to write novels one day, and I'm going to write them professionally. And I'm going to make money writing novels. And so I figured, well, why not go ahead and give permission myself to get started? So I began writing novels. Uh, I scrapped the first few and then eventually finished one that I began right around the time the fourth Indiana Jones film came out, the ill-fated Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I thought, hey, I could write for the audience that was disappointed by this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I did. The billing for my novel series is and was Indiana Jones for Millennials. And so uh, I wrote a couple of books. They were published, and then I go about doing the marketing activities for them, book signings and uh, events and workshops and panels and uh, social media stuff back when social media marketing wasn't nearly as what it is now. And then something interesting happened. Parallel to authorship for myself, I had hung up my shingle, as they say, as Joshua Lysak, freelance writer for hire. Because, well, if I can write well enough to write a book, maybe someone will pay me 50 bucks to write their resume or 50 bucks to write their product descriptions on Amazon or or what have you. I got a few clients, very, very low paying clients, so low that the very first project I got paid $1.67 an hour. 
So I was competing with people for whom that was a lot of money. If you give a sense of how how and where I exactly started this adventure mm-hmm. in 2011, professionally writing. I mentioned something interesting happened when my novels came out. People who had hired me for freelance writing work read my novels and said, wow, you can really write. I wanted to write a book longer than you've been alive, Joshua. Can you help me write my book? And I said, okay, fine, sure. I'll take on the freelance work. Yeah. And I had been saying, okay, fine, sure. I'll help you with your book. Or it's going to be 12 years now this year. Wow. So what are the, what are the kind, I want to get into what exactly ghostwriting is, but what are the kind of clients, what are the type of people that come to you, Joshua, and they want you to help them write their book? They're actual experts at what they do. So I say actual experts to differentiate from capital E expert with a little trademark behind them. These are the experts, quote unquote, that we all know of who position themselves as gurus on the biggest stages, palling up to WEF or the UN or some such other organization mm-hmm. or uh, Ivy League sponsored them or they're speaking at this place or look, I have a TED talk and I have a book coming out. And these these sorts of, of kind of pseudo experts that are pedestalized by institutions who don't necessarily have the individual's best interest at heart. But I mean, actual experts who have deep expertise in many things related to their work, except for one, which is self-promotion. That is who tends to find me the most. I'll give you a quick example of this. This is a book called Stay Off My Operating Table by a cardiologist who'd performed over 3,000 heart surgeries. It won the International Book of the Year Award for the Best Nonfiction Health Book of 2022. It sells about 1,000 copies a month. It not only helped the, uh, the physician launch his first business, but his second business as well. It's been a fantastic return on investment for him. Now, why would he do this? Because people have been telling him for years he needs to tell his story. That's one of the tells where you should probably have a book. Because people for years have been telling you, wow, you should really get the word out about this. This is really good stuff. But self-promotion is not in their talent stack. And it's not even in their personality. Because they don't, when they look at the the gurus and the, the capital E experts, it's all ego, bluster, and lies. In, in, in many cases, and like, well, I don't want to be like that. I'd have to be authentic. I'd have to be real. I'd have to be raw, but I don't know how to write a book. And then they they come to me. And the objective is for the book to propel them to something else. So it's to create new opportunities. So I've ghostwritten books that the objective is to get investors for their business, or it's to source deals for them that they can purchase and acquire new businesses for dimes on the dollar in their industry or in new industries, or it's to convert readers into customers for their business. So like like this book, the direct next step is to get a masterclass that expands on the material from the book and has worksheets, charts, and stuff that makes it super easy to implement the stuff in the book. Oh, and inside the book is a coupon. Once people either get in his free newsletter or get into his course, they learn about his one-on-one services. And then once you learn about those, oh, he also works with businesses. He has a health and wellness program for people, operations, and human resources organization. And so on and up from there, his book builds his business. But it was originally because I need to share my story. I, I think I would just need, I need to help people, but I want to do it in a way that's not self-aggrandizing. I want to promote without being self-aggrandizing. And that tends to be the person who's who has deep expertise in what they do. And maybe they've even got paid well for it. Uh, at some level, but they, the, but the whole story hasn't been told yet. No, and that makes sense because the best professionals and those who, you know, they try not to make waves. So 
you as a ghostwriter can come in and you can help them in that area. Now, ghostwriting, so people usually think of ghostwriting, it doesn't come up very often. And doing research for ghostwriting for this segment was very difficult because I would say 99% of the stuff I could find online was from ghostwriters. You know, it was like a video, like how to be a ghostwriter for another ghostwriter. There wasn't anything that was like ghostwriting 101, you know, for people who are outside that industry to understand it. And typically, from my point of view, we only ever hear of ghostwriters really when something goes wrong. So when uh, President Trump, when he was a candidate and he came out, there was a ghostwriter that worked on his book, Are the Deal. That was one of those moments. Or when um, a big rapper, say Drake, and it comes out one of his songs that he had claimed sole credit for. Actually, no, he had a partner. So we only really hear about ghostwriters when things go wrong. Why is that? Why does it seem like such a secretive profession? Because it seems like from what you're telling me, truly, instead of just being the sole authorship or taking over for someone, it sounds like this is like a, a team up. It's a collaborative effort. Yes, that's, that's a good question. They often remain behind the scenes because ghostwriters tend to also not be good at self-promotion. They tend to not be effective marketers because they tend to focus on the literary world. And in many cases, they have their own novels or they have uh, biographies that they've, they've written on people or they have kind of their, their own thing. And ghostwriting is kind of a once in a while side gig, maybe every couple of years, a good project will come along. And then there's the people who do it as kind of, frankly, freelance writing grunt work where they're earning 0.0001 cent per word written. They're trying to just churn out low quality stuff as fast as possible. And now they're using ChatGPT or SudoWrite or Jasper.ai and other tools to speed up that process of creating that low quality entry level uh, quality material uh, mm -hmm. that gets a, a bad rap. Uh, and, and sometimes I've had clients who have hired those people first and then fired them because it, it it wasn't it wasn't worth it. There's one client I had in 2019 2020. I was the 13th ghostwriter that he had hired. And the oh last one of course. But he had gone through 12 previous ones. And I have a few videos on common ghostwriting scams and bait and switches and manipulative tactics that ghostwriting agencies use on authors like this guy. And he'd been through all of them. And if you search like ghostwriter scam or ghostwriting scam, I think all my videos are at the top of search results. They teach how that is in fact uh, done and, and executed. But they tend to be kind of the behind the scenes person, except for one case. And the one case is mine. One case is mine. So what's that case? I used to have non-disclosure agreements with most of my authors. In fact, most of my books, we had a non-disclosure agreement. And then something interesting happened a few years ago. We had a non-disclosure agreement with one client. And then he said, Joshua, are you okay if I tell people that you wrote my book? Because you're kind of gaining in clout. And I feel like if I say Joshua Lysak wrote my book, it's going to sell more copies. And I said, okay, fine, sure. You can tell people I wrote your book. And now that is typical. I, authors will mention me in the acknowledgement. Sometimes they'll build me as their writing partner or their writing coach or their editor, or even as their ghostwriter. And we do promotions together for the book. So I've done multiple media events with Dr. Philip Ovedi, the cardiologist, in which he says, I'd like to introduce you to my ghostwriter, Joshua Lysak. He put a great book together here for me. And I get that wow. a lot. People will tag me at Joshua Lysak, probably telling everyone that was part of their book process because it's going to sell more copies. Oh, it's a Joshua Lysak book. I should go buy it. Like it, it, even if even if it's about health or it's about business psychology or if it's about marriage and family law and divorce, in one case, people say, oh, I, mean, I need to go buy that book because Joshua did it. 
And that's the sort of brand I've cultivated for myself. And it's unique amongst all ghostwriters who try to remain behind the scenes and their clients make sure no one ever knows that their book was ghostwritten. This is the craziest thing about ghostwriting is the sense I get from talking to people that know some about this industry is a huge percentage, perhaps even like 50 up, like more than half of the major books that you hear about, especially in the celebrity and political columns, are just other people. Like like the newest, you know, the newest book comes from them, whoever's going to run for office, you know, and it's like. Oh, it's 90%. It's, 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 it's above 90%. Yeah. Now I'll give you a quick, quick little story. You want to hear how, how books are ghostwritten for this. celebrities? This is hilarious. Okay. So if you're a public figure, be you a celebrity or, or a musician or a rapper or a rock star or, or a political hopeful, here's how it goes. The author is willing to meet with you twice. They will meet with you as a ghostwriter twice. They will expect the book done in six weeks. A 65,000 word book is going to be done in six weeks. Now, here's what they say. Everything about my life and my story is publicly available. It's all public knowledge. So you do your research. You find all the facts about me. And I'll fill in a couple of details meaning with you twice. So what the ghostwriter then does is they go to Wikipedia and they go to the speeches. They go to everything and they compile all of it into some sort of a chronological order work in their own beliefs, their own ideas, and kind of like, frankly, ghost write it. And by ghost, I mean spirit, as in, in the spirit of this person. Really what they're doing is they're making <laughs> stuff up. They're making stuff up. And guess what? Most of the time, the author doesn't even read the book. And so they'll be in an interview. I had this once. I had an author I, I, I had done this thing for, I just described. I done that for somebody who is a, a historian. Great ironies. I did all of his research to, to make him look like a historian. This is one of those things that I kind of regret a little bit. So for this particular historian, he had an interview on NPR. And the questions he was asked, which are based obviously on the contents of the book, and his answers to them indicated he didn't even know what was in his own book. Now, I noticed that, but I don't know if anybody else did as well. And that's one of the things about being ghostwriters. Whenever you hear someone give an interview, you know whether or not they're real or not, whether or not they're they're legit or not. Um, and uh, in his case, nope, definitely did not. <laughs> well, in his defense, the people that interview him almost never read the book either. So it's not like they're going to call him out on it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Like, they don't have time. But I will say that the best interviewers know their work deeply. For example, um, I was interviewed a few years ago by uh, James Altucher, the, the choose yourself mm -hmm. guy. And uh, James was asking about particular tactics and tips I had shared in premium courses and trainings I had done on persuasive writing. So like when you talk about this in this section of this thing, like, oh, you went and you availed yourself of some of my material and you, you, you bought it and you got into it to give specific questions about it. And those tend to be more, more fun interviews for, from a promotion perspective is when they can ask about the story behind the story, you know, versus just uh, kind of surface level, surface level questions and get surface level answers. You see. So with the experience you have, how do you ghostwriters recognize another ghostwriter without like being outright told? Is there like, like one guy I listened to, he had, he was the head of the Gotham Ghostwriters Association, something like that. And he said, well, you know, I often can tell if the book was ghostwritten because they will name certain people in the acknowledgement section and it'll be that person that isn't all that famous. But besides that, which anyone could do, for you as a ghostwriter, how can you tell if another book you're reading by someone else is legit or not? 
Yes, yes. So I don't know if I'm necessarily being being le- legitimate, but here is an interesting heuristic that I found to be true. And I, I'm familiar with uh, with Gotham. They're they're a ghostwriting agency in um, in New York. Um, the acknowledgments point is true. If they mention somebody, I'd like to thank my editor, my book coach, my writing partner, which you which you will see sometimes. And that's that's a, obviously a, a direct tell. And of course, there's always also on some books, author's name with. And then their ghostwriter with the ghostwriters, like the co- mm-hmm. co-author, right? So those co-authors for hire, no, they're ghostwriters, right? But those co-authors have such a, let's say, a, a well-known, they, they have their own books out there already. Like John David Mann, for example, who is who is the with guy for Bob Berg and Bob Berg's books. Like Bob Berg with John David Mann and then Bob Berg and John David Mann. Because John David Mann is known in his own right, so he could sell the book to his uh, audience as well. And so he's like a co-author for hire, which is a little bit different because then he gets his name on the cover and he enforces the direction of the book and he goes and markets it because it's on a topic that he's also written about solo. So that's another way of saying, okay, it's probably ghostwritten. But here's that heuristic I mentioned. It goes like this. We all know the 80-20 rule, right? Where 20% of the input results in 80% of the output. 20% 20% of the energy you, you put into something gets you 80% of the results. That that kind of Pareto principle, it's called, appears throughout. What I have noticed is the, that, that, that sort of input and output is also existent in public figures, particularly personal brands or entrepreneurs, even companies, where the most successful marketers and promoters, their talent, 80% of it is marketing the service. 20% of it is the quality of the service. So what does that mean? It means all flash oh, and yeah. little substance, all sizzle and little steak, for example. But they know how to get people to want to buy it because they studied hypnosis. They did not study their area of expertise, unfortunately, which is why I did both. So I'm the only person in the world who's a certified hypnotist and a certified ghostwriter because it's important to actually know what you're talking about <laughs> in both domains of study. But there are also the people who are, unfortunately, 80% quality of service and only 20% marketing. And you can tell these people because their websites look like they were from the year 2002. And they are. (laughs) They are only $150 a session and their competitors are $15,000 for a 10-week program, for example. But that $150 is going to get you the results you want. And the $15,000 thing is going to give you a guilt trip because you didn't get the results that were promised by the coach. And it's your fault because you didn't want it bad enough, right? This is a kind of the group think that's put in there. If all of you didn't get the results you paid for, it's your fault, which is pretty common in the coaching industry, life coaching, business coaching, and that, that sort of thing. But where does this, how does this answer your question about a yeah. tell for a book? If you look at an author's personal brand, do they look like they have everything together? Meaning, is there beautiful uniformity and an, an, an incredible brilliance across all of their social media and the colors and the fonts and even the, the garments that they're wearing in the pictures, they all match from one social media platform to the next and their website. And do they use cookies on their on their website? And do they have uh, uh, their, their funnel set up? And does the book have a bunch of reviews? And does it have bestseller badge of one way or another? And have they had big interviews on all the podcasts? That's a person who realizes they can't do everything themselves. So they've hired experts. They have a PR expert. They have a funnel building expert. They have a website design expert. And they have a book expert, such as a ghostwriter. 
your focus seems to be more on nonfiction. What about ghostwriting in the fiction world? Have you worked on uh, ghostwriting as fiction? And like, how yes. how pervasive is that? Because I have no idea the sense of how far that goes. The more fiction, the, the more fiction books someone has written, the more likely they were ghostwritten. So, it is suggested. Some would say it is known that most novelists who come out with the book a quarter, like Jeans Patterson, Danielle Steele, David Baldacci, think like the well-known, most well-known novelists, Janet Ivanovich, they have eight or nine ghostwriters at any given time working on their books. So they'll they'll map it out. The authors will map out the plot, the story, kind of just write it out and give some notes on the characters and the setting and whatever. And they pass it off to their team to produce. And that just makes sense from a financial perspective. The more books that are produced, the more books the publisher can sell, the more books customers can buy. They keep buying. Oh, there's a new book. That was that was quick. I just finished the last one. So there's a new book every 90 days. I used to work in um, work in the library world, and I would I would see this firsthand. And I would be uh, working on you know, entering information for a a date an author's new book. And had like a little news sticker on it, right? And it still had the news sticker on it. And the author's next book was already out. And we were shoving them both together because it was just a couple of months that the last one had come out, right? So, of course, the publishers are not going to rely on an author just figuring it out themselves and taking two years to or, or longer to write their first book, which is how long it took me, almost almost three years to write my first full novel that I actually finished. No, they need it in three months. So they need, they need seven, eight, nine people working on it at, at any given time. Now, there have even been a few people I've spoken with who, who would know that said that the Harry Potter books, specifically books two through seven, were majority ghostwritten. I'm not asserting that. I've heard multiple people tell me that before, who, who, who would know, let's say. Why? Because of the commercial potential for it. Do you think a multi-billion dollar franchise is going to be left up to the work ethic of one person who, by the way, gave birth to two children when the books were being written and released, the media tours, the 2003-2005. You look into it, you just re you, you realize, oh, wait a second, this has all the tells. It's all the tells. Oh, she didn't write it. Oh, go, you know, go screw yourself. Who cares? Who cares, really? This is an empire. This is an empire. And there's never one person who's responsible for building an em a multi-billion dollar empire like that. But it is nice to have a figurehead who resonates with, uh, with media. But were were you in someone were you in someone like that person's shoes? Would you not delegate as much as you could? Heck yeah, you would. And also working with traditional publishers, it's been my experience that edit the acquisitions editor who's at the publishing house and their copy editor will often rewrite entire passages or even write entire passages. So even if there's not a ghostwriter, there is a an editor mm -hmm. who's involved in writing entire sections, entire passages. No, that's not going to work. That's a bad idea. We need to do it this way. And then they, they write all of this stuff. And nobody sees behind the scenes except for industry insiders who usually don't come out and say anything like hey, and now because they'd rather not, uh, they'd rather be agreeable with their industry insiders to keep their job and not ruffle any feathers. I, of course, have demonstrated that I'm uncanceled. So I don't <laughs> care. I can say what I want. Well, your, your, your honesty and being candid is super uh, appreciated because I, I, I find this, all this whole universe that you live it seems like there's this universe of ghostwriting this is the real universe of the literary world and it sits just below the public one 
Um, you know, I think part of the question people might want to ask is like, what is authorship? You know, if you put together a, a, an outline and it's your ideas and you can get someone to come in and they can do, you know, this is like the AI debate, really. And you can get someone to come in and they can mimic your style or understand how you would put something. Can you not say that that is in line with the spirit of your work? Um, and maybe with the changes we're seeing in AI, people be are open to that. I don't know. Do you do you see things changing in ghostwriting, especially when it comes to the the AI equation? Um. Yes and no. So with with ghostwriting, I think one of the best ways to think of it is as hiring a contract lawyer or hiring a CPA to do your taxes. They're still your taxes. That's still your document, but it's done right. <laughs> as opposed to, imagine we try to do it your taxes yourself, especially if you have a, if you have a business. That is a very bad idea to do that. But I did it myself. I wrote my book myself. I did my taxes myself. Yeah, you're going to get audited. Okay. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, you you forgot to include the, oh, let's say the royalty payment clause in your contract. So you just gave away everything and it's too late. That's how it is with taxes. That's how it is with books as well. You hire your contract lawyer, your CPA, and your ghostwriter all for the same reason. Why? They know how to do it successfully. But what yet you would just say, would you say it's not your taxes? It's it's the tax preparer's taxes? That's not how it works. They do the work. They know the laws. They know the rules. They know what to do and what not to do. And it's the same. It's the same with uh with 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 book writing. Now, the interesting thing is that there are quote unquote rules for book writing. There's things that you do, these things that you don't do, from structure to openings to all these other things. And that's how AI likes to play. There's a company called Jasper.ai. They use OpenAI is, is what they access. And they have what are called recipes, which are basically, um, you see it as, a, it kind of looks like a dashboard, basically, of how to write a full book using Jasper.ai, be it a novel or be it nonfiction. And they have a challenge. I think Darby Rollins is his name. He runs a seven-day AI, seven-day AI author challenge or something like that where you use these recipes, which are basically formulas for getting the AI to spit out somewhat useful information that you can actually use, as opposed to using like chat GPT, which is just asking questions, write me a book description about X, and it's going to give you a generic, boring, vague description about X. But Jasper.ai and the recipes do a much better job at this. So I think there will be a lot of DIYers who, do-it-yourselfers, who instead of literally writing every single word of the book themselves, we'll try to figure out how to use chat or try to use a Jasper.ai or another tool to get those tools to write the book, but they're still going to be DIYing it for the most part. That does not appeal to elite entrepreneurs, does not appeal to successful public figures. They're not going to learn how to use Jasper.ai. That's just not going to happen. There are excellent tools that don't necessarily do like generative writing where they make stuff up, but they rather they summarize existing information. So there's I think mem.ai is a app slash Twitter account that people will tag and say, for example, on one of one of my threads, people will reply to one of my Twitter threads and and do hashtag memit or something like that, like memit, right? And then the little memit tool will write a three tweet summary of the thread. And it's not making up anything. It is summarizing what's existing content. It's pretty good. It's pretty, I'm not gonna say it's it's perfect, it's fantastic. It's pretty good. It's done faster than a human doing it themselves. That's what's important. That's where the money in AI is, is speed. I think all this stuff is generally positive. And I mean, look, there are, 
people that do it the DIY, you know, they can make that work. More power to them. I, you know, that's not what you do, but a lot of people do that. Um, so I think this stuff, you know, my experience is what I've seen so far, at least in my profession, is that it's it's collaborative. It's another tool in your arsenal, but it's not going to take over what you're doing. And you're right. I think people probably they're just, you know, they're going to there will probably always be some bugs or it probably will be perhaps a little bit off. And even if everything worked right, there'll be always be people who say, you know, I just want to make sure that it's OK. I want that human touch. I want to know someone looked over this and gave yeah. it like this is all right. Uh, and there will always be a place for that. At least I hope so. Otherwise, I better start looking for a new profession. I'm working on my own nonfiction book um, right now. And this is what it's about. It is about solving the problem of the best known people in an industry usually provide the lowest quality service in that industry. But they're the biggest because they've optimized for marketing. They've optimized, they've optimized for customer acquisition. And the people who are struggling, frankly, in obscurity, having to have multiple side hustles and a real job, um, they're the ones who are overlooked. They're the ones who can't squeak a real good living out of their business, much less make like a, a six-figure year out of it, even doing it part-time or, or trying to bring it full-time. That's who I want to help raise up to the next level because they've already gotten good results. That's the thing. That's those are the people that I want to be helping the most. The people who are already succeeding, who are already know what they're doing, and help them bridge the brand gap to understand how to better package themselves and present themselves and go mainstream. And that's something that I think Phil, Dr. Philip Ovedi, the cardiologist client of mine, he's a good example of someone who has deep competence. But when he looks at at the industry, he realizes the famous authors in his niche haven't done a single heart surgery. They don't know how to look at a scan. They don't know what an MRI of, 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 of this or that is. They couldn't tell you the, the ventricle from the aorta. And yet they're bestsellers, the national bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers on heart health book. And so he thought, well, there's, there's a problem. And he can solve that problem. Do you think that's changing in your profession? Or do you think the attitude towards that is changing at all? Because I know from my side, people still look at ghostwriting very much as did you really do that or not? It doesn't usually go too much deeper than that. Yeah, that's pretty typical. And kind of mainstream ghostwriters are, are still um, kind of hiding in the mainstream. I'm doing what I what I can to to change that because I have my my own persuasive writing course and persuasive writing programs. And so people associate with, with me a certain level of professionalism, a certain level of respectability, and also a certain level of persuasion, because so many big names have said good things about me, and they and the the halo effect people want to take advantage of. And so to say, at Joshua Lysak, work with me on my book, you should go buy it. That is, in fact, a value and a reason to buy it. Have you ever worked on projects? Do you still work on projects where they don't want a disclosure? Or have you ever worked on a project you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that? Have you had negative experiences ghostwriting? You know, the, maybe you're the guy that wrote that Donald Trump book who now says, oh, I, I wish I had never done it, yada, yada. Uh, anything like that for you? Yeah, early early in my early in my career, basically, if you would pay me to write it, I would write it. And so I wrote many things that I either didn't care for or I disagreed with because I, I needed the money. I mean, you don't start at a dollar six, seven an hour and are picking and choosing <laughs> what projects you take on. But it also turns out that I've, I've written multiple sides of every argument, frankly, that there is, whether, whether it's a culture war perspective or in business. And there have been times where I was writing a book for one author, one expert who's making case X. And then at the same time, even the same day, I'd meet with the, another author 
who was my, you know, anti-X, and I was writing a book on that. So I'm, I'm taking multiple sides to the story, and so that, that gives me an interesting view of reality itself, especially from a religious perspective, when there was one day I was working with someone who was a, a Sikh or also was a Sikh, mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 the Indian um, religion. I'm working with one member of that organization, and then I'm working with a, a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yep. also known as Mormons. And then the next hour, I'm working with someone who is a devout Hindu. And the interesting thing you learn from those experiences and working their religions and their beliefs and their faith into their respective books is all of their belief systems are um, accurate from their perspective. They are able to use kind of confirmation bias and hindcasting to demonstrate that everything that they believe is is true. So you learn a different view of reality on that. And from their perspective, they were they were adding value to their communities and to their network. So even if I may disagree with someone, um, I'm I'm fine with I'm fine with that if it doesn't make the world a worse place. Although I have written books that I know for sure made the world, <laughs> the world a, a much worse place, and that was at that point in my life. I will say, Peter, I, I didn't realize how good I was yet. I'm so I, I am I so yet. good. I am wrecking the world with my incredible prowess. That is a good way to put it. Yes, in fact, that is what happened. Yeah. So now I'm very picky and very picky and very choosy. Okay. So uh, let's end here. So you started your writing career because you love Indiana Jones. I love Indiana Jones. Many people do. Uh, what are your feelings on the, that franchise? There is supposedly another movie coming out. The rumors about it aren't super great. What do, you, what do you think of Indiana Jones? Do you have good feelings about if Disney's going to do something good with it? So there's something interesting that we've observed with uh, with with entertainment, and I want to reference something that Scott Adams said, the, the creator of the Dilbert comic strip and best-selling author of multiple nonfiction books. So Scott pointed out the other day he was watching um, the Glass Onion, the Netflix special with the uh, um, uh, the Daniel Craig detective character yeah, by uh, right? Ryan. And he Johnson. pointed out how it's an enjoyable movie because it's how how movies used to be. Now movies and 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 entertainment products. They try to make the audience uh, feel as bad as possible, as often as possible, with uh, graphic shock value as much as they can, even in genres that you might not often see it. And I think it's because entertainment products now have to compete with TikTok, with YouTube shorts, Instagram reels. And they have to over-deliver what they delivered in the past. And I often get that wrong. I often get that wrong. So they think, what if we insert utterly graphic violence into a family show or uh, a melodrama or romantic comedy that it might uh, otherwise be in, well, that'll make sure people get get the attention, right? And so what we have here is the institutions behind entertainment products wondering the real competition is not other movies, it's other media. It, it's it's social media. Because now if you go to a theater and, and you see, look at the people in front of you, everybody's on their phones. Yep. <laughs> So if they, they've they've bought it and yet they're not even paying attention in, in in many cases. And if you ever watch friends or family watch films, well, it's like uh, putting on a movie is a good excuse to scroll Twitter or TikTok and once once every once in a while I'll glance up at the TV for a graphic sex scene or there's gratuitous violence, right? Or oh, that's interesting and that's cool and that's unique. You know, just more of the same over and over doesn't necessarily do it for audiences quite like it quite quite like it used to. And then, of course, nostalgia is some is an asset that theaters will often try to very clumsily uh, cash in on to, to kind of liquidate as much of the nostalgia as possible, like the Star Wars sequel trilogy that, in my opinion, was botched. 
uh, and didn't have to be uh, because it was more of a remake um, than a, uh, let's say, than an actual sequel trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I expect that this fifth Indiana Jones installment will suffer from some of the same things where there will be a lot of really cool moments of nostalgia and then other moments where, huh, we see what you're doing here, but it doesn't make any sense for the characters to act that way or to say that line of dialogue. And there's no actual agenda or motivation other than the millennial woke writers there. Wouldn't it be cool if we had this character do this? Oh my God, that would be like so based, like so epic. And then of course, when they say base, they don't mean base, they mean cringe in these environments. And so that's probably what's what's going to be likely is it will, it will pull people to the box office for uh, the nostalgia. And then there'll be a really a cool, uh, a few cool moments. And then in the days and weeks afterwards, they will most likely forget it because it was a forgettable film with tired tropes and terrible plotting, not the greatest pacing in the world. And hey, look at the aged Harrison Ford. Quick. Cash on that nostalgia. They can hear the uh, the cash registers ringing already, which of course is why they're doing it that way. Is uh, this nostalgia experience with a de-aged uh, Harrison Ford? And you know, I, I'm going to go to theater. I don't I don't go to theaters anymore. I haven't been. I've seen like one movie in the theater in the last three years, I think. And I'm not even that marketer, but it's it's already effective. At, okay, I'm going to go see it. Uh, 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 prove prove me wrong. I'll let Kathleen Kennedy prove me wrong. <laughs> I I know. I keep coming back for more punishment. I don't know why. I, I just like, oh, they can't they can't possibly do something worse or as bad again. And they they do it like almost like nine times out of ten. Why do you, you think know, like, they do that? It sells, apparently, because it, otherwise, why would they keep going? I mean, there's got to be some. You're right that they feel like maybe even if they're not getting in like ticket sales, there must be some incentive down the line. Either they're making money in, in marketing or it's telling taking people to theme parks or they just think a big attention economy is enough. I don't know. It could also be that their their point isn't necessarily to create art. It's that there is a a sociopolitical agenda that is being propelled, that's being pushed. And so money is not necessarily the chief interest of the people who are being paid for this sort of thing. For example, the um, uh, it seems to me like the Rings of Power series is not meant to be a serious, uh, let's say, adaptation of any mm-hmm. of uh, Tolkien's works. It seems to be both a kind of a, frankly, culture war propaganda together with let's see if we can make as much money as possible off this thing with as many cool special effects as possible because people, people like that stuff. <laughs> so it's like, let's make as much money as possible off of it and virtue signals so people don't know how much money we're making. It's kind of like a, a loincloth, you might say. Yeah, and you get warmed over wokeness, basically. And we're like, this is... Like, this is so boring. It's hard to get offended when you're like, I see what you're trying to do there. I know you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, you know, get, get up my uh, ander. It might, you know, make me mad. I just, I can't do it. This is so terrible. That, that's kind of how I felt about Audrey. I know everyone was tight talking about writing about the subject. But I was like, I just, I just can't. It's just so bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really a shame because even though, of course, it's the intellectual property of the, uh, of of the estate these these stories and its accompanying world and the lore and the music and all this it's, it's sort of owned in all of our imaginations collectively and this is why it is i think it there is a little bit of suffering that happens in mass when we the people see these stories that have meant so much to us and inspired us d- during our darkest times and we see what they are doing and yet they do it anyway. And we see, and they see that we see what it is that they're doing. 
and they do it anyway. It's sort of a uh, naked carelessness coupled with an entitlement that they have that, look, product you like, you buy, buy it, buy it, buy it. So it's it's sort of lazy, lazy. It's also apparently less risky because the only writers they're able to hire are the are the woke millennials and, and Gen Zers who don't understand human motivation and haven't had real relationships with real human beings that have been functional. And so they act like, well, here's how people should act. Here's how they should talk to each other. Not, and that's why we get strange dialogue. One character says to another in these films, in these shows, that's not how people talk to each other. That's not what yeah. you would say, right? Like we see what you're trying to do. We see that you're trying to make the character feel inspiring, but the character's just being a butthole. <laughs> it's not actually inspiring because they don't know how, how good stories work and how good characterization works. And it could be that the education and the training that they have received, these writers and storytellers, has been subpar because it's been focused on this or that ideology over another of actually studying the, the masters of, of these works and why understanding why things work. There's so much of should. This a character should act this way. This is how relationships should be. A sort of sort of a sort of clumsy social engineering. Uh, that's not great. And then the people who are running them, well, just throw on special effects to make sure it makes lots of money. Do it, say have the character say whatever you want. Just make sure that it's ROI. You know. And it doesn't necessarily seem that there's a conspiracy or sort of a plot, but when you follow the money, you arrive you arrive at the conclusion of as many special effects as possible, as many as many diverse casts as possible, so we can market in other countries. So it's not just like this American product, um, but we can. Hey, look look at the Asians! Quick, Asians, go buy this! Go buy this! It's kind of like, <laughs> come on, man, we see yeah. what you're doing there, and it's, it's obviously that's what they're doing, and they call it representation, like it's that's advertising. It's like, look, an Asian person, go buy it, go buy it. Um, so they have very little respect for the consumer, be the consumer being American or somebody who's in Singapore or somebody who is in Australia or somebody who is in Southern Europe. It's all very clumsy. It's all very tiring. And uh, that's why I do what I can to avoid purchasing their, their products. No. And you watch shows. I, I, for the, I don't know why I make myself suffer. So I watched the, the Witcher Blood Origins because I am a huge fan of Sapowski's books. And it's like, it's like, it's like watching toddlers for spec script. It's like, oh, look at you, look at you, pick it up. You know, it's, it's really hard to take it seriously. Cause you're like, like anyone could have written this. It's so, it's terrible. And obviously then they're not coming to people like you who actually know a thing or have, or have competence. And you, and for example, you have great passion for certain uh, literary works like Token. So you would have been a great call up maybe to go and work on the Rings of Power show, but they don't. So here's my last question for you. Is ghostwriting, is that world affected by the socio-politics stuff that we've seen people sometimes call wokeness? Does that come down to your profession? Does that impact you at all? Are you guys uh, well protected from all that garbage the rest of us have to swim through? We do have to be sensitive to who our authors are and who our authors' publishers are and who our authors' publishers' audiences are. So there have been times where publishers asked my authors and therefore me to rewrite chapters, even an entire manuscript, because it wasn't woke enough. And they use language like it's un it's it's inaccessible to diverse audiences. Wow. And, and what they really mean is. It's it's a money grab. Like they're all they're 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 virtualizing it. Like it has to be open and has to reach as many diverse backgrounds as possible. What they really mean is, 
We need you to use a lot more generic examples of different kinds of people in different situations so we can market it to all of our verticals. That's what they really mean. What they really mean is, is we need to see, we need to sell this to more people. Come on, water it down, water it down, water it down, water it down. Dilute the power, dilute the power. Quick, just throw in other examples. Don't care. Just do it. And, and, and the funny thing is that they would even be on topics that my author had no expertise in and no interest in writing in. But the publisher said, no, we need it in there because we got these markets we can market it to. But they use they use the woke language as a as fig leaves, basically, over their their naked focus on commercial viability, all as much money as possible at all costs. So I have experienced that in the before or before, but it's a sort of a it's an excuse. It's an excuse. And I've, I pointed this out that before that there's something deeper to virtual signaling with with woke ideology. So and I'll give this last last anecdote as an illustration of of that. Okay. In the area where I live, there is one particular neighborhood that is known as the elite neighborhood. The the old money lives there, and like the old old money, like like industrial revolution, uh, post American Civil War money, and their descendants. They all live in this particular neighborhood. They have ridiculous homeowners association rules that are that are boggling, and of course you have to pay to live there, and it's very expensive, and there's onions of property values, all all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is the least diverse neighborhood in the entire area. And I'm, I'm in ge- geography of 1.1 million people. It's the least diverse neighborhood of them all. It also has the highest concentration of Black Lives Matter paraphernalia throughout the neighborhood. And that is, in a microcosm, the entertainment product industry. It does what they can to make it seem that they are not what they are that they are what they are not amen i nailed it that is as succinctly put i that has been my experience my understanding of the situation it's it seems to be a lot of people who know that if they were living by the rules that they vocalize know that they would be one of the first people on the chopping block <laughs> they're just like pick everyone else but me i'm not a good one leave you alone and uh it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And if and look, and if, when it comes to entertainment, if you guys are going to do this, like try a little harder, you know, like like a little little more effort. I mean, it it's it's like it, like part of my job. Sometimes I have to cover a lot of media that's done unwell, and if it's you know, and you get tired of it because it's it's not just bad; it's boring, and it's very hard to work with that. But Joshua, not your products and your work and your Twitter, which is at Joshua Lysick. And Lysick is spelled L-I-S-E-C. It is not boring. I find it very interesting. I love the tidbits you share there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Josh. Um, sorry, Joshua. Where can people find you if they are interested? And maybe they want to call you up, say, hey, Joshua, you inspired me. I want you to help write my grand American novel. Where can they find you? Yeah, the, the, my, my favorite place to find me where all of my real-time shenanigans are is at Joshua Lysick on Twitter and then all of my persuasive writing programs, including my my one of my latest novels and my fiction writing program, links in the bio of the Twitter bio and also in more information about my, my ghost writing services. It's all in the bio at Joshua Lysick on Twitter. All right, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Joshua. I appreciate it. I learned a lot. Uh, I hope the audience here did too. And until next time, my friends... Keep geeking out.